All right, well, it's uh, good to be here with you again. So what we're looking at today is the natural law. Um, and probably more than other things we're looking at, there'll be a mixture of backgrounds and what you know already. So the Anglican Church had a very established, big academic tradition of natural law, certainly in some sections. Whether some of you have encountered that within the Anglican Church or not, I don't know. So I'm going to kind of presume nothing. Also presume nothing so that, in a sense, if you might have done something with not a very good foundation, um, I'm going to presume nothing. Though we're only doing an overview, as with all these things. So natural law is what we're looking at today. Um, so there are three words, concepts, that we need to be kind of clear about in our heads. Um, the in natural law discussions are used almost interchangeably. Uh, reason, law, and nature. So reason, we believe as Christians in a rational God, and he made everything rationally. He commands certain things. Now, according to as St. Thomas breaks it down, law is a subsection of reason. It's a decree of reason that has a command attached. So anything that is a, a law, including therefore a moral law, um, is a thing of reason, but it's a commanded bit of reason. So when we're thinking in moral theology, what does the law say? Well, it's actually the same question as asking, what does reason say? So the word law, moral law, natural law, and reason are pretty much interchangeable. So what does the natural law say about marriage? Well, it's the same thing that reason says about marriage. So reason and law use almost interchangeably. Nature... Um, Thinking back, you know, a rational God, he has created things. Um, when we talk about nature, we're talking about what he has made. And he has made things, he is rational, he's made things according to his wisdom. So when we look at nature, and we're looking at how it functions, and what it does, and how it comes to fulfillment, or doesn't come to fulfillment, what brings something to its end, or doesn't, well, we're looking, in nature, at the work of a rational creator. So, again, if we're asking the question, what does reason say about something? Well, it's the same thing as saying, what does nature say about something? Because nature has come from the same rational God, the same rational God who's commanded everything he's commanded. So, these three things. What does nature say? What does reason say? What does the natural law say pretty much all interchangeable so I say that as a kind of introduction to kind of those are three words to have clear in our thoughts so if you look at the notes I've given you there on the first page um,
Another thing we need to kind of grasp as a simple foundational point when we're talking about natural law is what we're meaning that in contrast with, and it's in contrast with supernatural in this context. So, revelation, how God speaks, how he has revealed himself and everything he has to say in revealing himself. The two ways God has done that, naturally and supernaturally. So if I look at my notes there, the first thing I've noted is supernatural revelation. Um, so God's revelation by supernatural means, supernatural mechanisms. And the example I've given there is the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So when God appears in a burning fire and smoke and whatever on Mount Sinai, well, he doesn't, that's not his normal means of doing stuff. That's not a natural way of revealing stuff. It's a supernatural uh, input. Um, that's how he reveals himself. <coughs> I've asked a question there that uh, is one of those addressed by St. Thomas. He, the question, why do we need supernatural revelation? Why do we need moments like that on Mount Sinai? Well, St. Thomas says, because without supernatural revelation, those truths about God which human reason could have discovered would only be known by a few, and that after long time, and with the admixture of many errors. So you'd have been able, by reason, human reason, to know all, all kinds of things, but it would have been difficult to know. So that the ancient Greeks, in their philosophy, knew pretty much all of the ethical law we as Christians hold, um, but actually there weren't many of them. You know, that, that level of philosophy wasn't reached by many without the benefits of Christian faith. And even then, it was only reached after a long time, and even then they had mixed into it various odd notions, including homosexual behaviours and so forth. Um, so, we need supernatural revelation to come in and teach these things that we would have been able to know naturally. Now, in contrast, I've said supernatural revelation, just to grasp it by point of contrast, said that God's revelation by natural means, and the example I've given there, revealing his existence by the beauty and order of the cosmos. So you don't need the cloud on Mount Sinai. You can look out at the wonder of the stars and see his beauty, see his order, see his wisdom, that he is naturally revealing himself all the time. So this distinction, natural and supernatural. And it's not my, I'm not a philosopher. Uh, we could have a long detour on actually defining nature and supernatural and actually the, the fact that actually there is something in that distinction that's a little artificial, that's not quite as tidy as I'm lining it up here. But at a practical level, as a distinction, it does work. Um, and in what we're looking at today, it's pivotally important because what we're saying about human reason as Catholics is that we're saying... Even your good atheist is able to know the moral law. He doesn't have to be a bit of a Christian to know the moral law. Because he's got reason, he therefore has access 
to the moral law because he can look at nature the same nature we can look at. So are you a... um, No, but can, can I come back quickly sure. just a little, in a little, in a little bit? Something that's just puzzling me a bit. Okay, let's go through the rest of this page and maybe have a slight pause. So, I'm spelling out that a bit further, further down the page here. So, one and two again, supernatural revelation. Two ways here, I'm focusing this now, not just on his revelation in general, but his revelation of the moral law. The, the things he has commanded that we do. Well, he's done that supernaturally. Um, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, other bits we might find in the, the scriptures. He has supernaturally made his law known. But naturally, he has also made his law known. So what I've said there, the natural revelation of the moral law is what can be known by reason, what can be known naturally. It's what we call the natural law. Um, and the kind of standard text from this from Scripture is the one there from Romans. When Gentiles who have not the law of Moses do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. So the Gentiles, they don't have the law of Moses, but they do have that moral law written on their hearts. It's in nature. It's in my nature simply as a human being. It doesn't just appear there with the sacramental character of baptism. In my human nature, the moral law is written, the natural moral law. Just spelling that out a bit further. Uh, the word reason, what do we mean then by reason? Well, it's everything that can be known without supernatural revelation. So that's a kind of negative definition, but I think that's the most useful one. When we're talking about reason, we're meaning, here's somebody who doesn't have a Bible, doesn't have Christian tradition, what can he know? Well, reason is what he can know. And reason is able to know this thing called the natural law. Noted also that the word experience. So actually part of what reason looks at all the time is human experience. So not just my experience and your experience, but experience of humanity all down the centuries. So I said that experience is a source of knowledge of the moral law. And I've given an example there. So experience shows, we can look at statistics these days, that sex outside marriage weakens marriage. Now reason can look at that experience and deduce that sex outside marriage is a sin against marriage. So it's looking at nature, at experience, and deducing what the moral law is. So that one of the things we use in natural law analyses is human experience. That human experience shows us what human nature is. And obviously, as I've said there, human experience has to be analysed carefully, just like using statistics. That You can get results you want, which isn't necessarily the same thing as those that are true, but that what we're saying as Catholics <coughs> is that experience is one of the tools reason can use for analysing nature. 
point being, it's a posteriori. It's, it's always a, an addition to the prior uh, reasonable uh, moral axioms, as it were. Well, yeah, experience can supplement. Experience is a basis, but does not itself ground moral claim. Is that right? Because otherwise, you, you start with experience. The world now starts with experience. Mm -hmm. And then tries to deduce from experience alone what is right and what's wrong. What were you going to say? Isn't it uh, is a question of how one views that and what experience means? Because in, in that, that is a kind of what we do, the, the uh, a priori and the opposite, the Kantian kind of. Exactly. And I wonder whether that's a part of the problem. Because in an Aristotelian scheme of sort of epagogical learning, it is that we unearth in experience, not in subjective, what we call but that we unearth in experience the principles that determine, in other words, would we access nature, reason, law through um, an analysis of experience. In, in other words, law becomes experience understood. But you can't, so you shouldn't distinguish them so much as to make them a binary thing. So it's, they're all interchange, they're, they're interlinked. In they are interlinked in a particular kind of process of learning, um, whereas in Kant they are not. And, and if, if yeah. one sticks with a Kantian scheme, you're not going to get that. Mm -hmm. Right. And we live in this world where this Kantian terminology yeah, is there, so there's this thing that, well, that's only experience. Whereas in Aristotle, experience, great. That's, what else do I have Which to know Thomas about? Thought. Exactly, and that's what St. Thomas would be using. So how do I understand the human person? Well, experience of humans is how I do that. And even when Kant is pretending that he's extrapolating some abstract He's actually really using human experience. Self-referential. Self-referential. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean my human experience. It's, it's human experience of all humanity. Um, I think he misunderstands the, um, the, the, the kind of... I, I think he underestimates the degree to which he has things to work on that he takes for granted. Yeah. That, um, are still there, kind of consensus of all sorts of things that uh, has gone now, but that at the time was still there. And I think he underestimates. He thinks he's. He, he can see this. He can analyze this out of that. But, but in actual fact, in a society that has disintegrated that consensus, it wouldn't work. So I don't think he does it on purpose. I don't think it's self-referential as much as that he doesn't quite understand that the presuppositions of what he's yeah. doing are themselves not. He does as evident as he thinks they are. He has unadmitted preconceptions that he, that... Um, <clears throat> he thinks they are evident in a way that I think we would now doubt they are. But in a different context. So as a Catholic, doing my ethical analysis, natural law, I would expect to use statistical data. That statistical analysis is actually revealing to me something about human interaction. Um, so one of the examples we'll look at this afternoon, contraception. Um, Janet Smith is an American scholar um, looking at studies that show that couples that use natural family planning have a lower divorce rate than couples that use contraception. Um, that, that actually doesn't prove one is right or wrong, but actually it's an indication of something else she is saying is inherent in both packages of behaviour. Anyway, we'll look at that this afternoon. Two brief things at the bottom of the page there. The role of the magisterium. So, magisterium 
as authority over supernatural revelation, as authority over scripture, over tradition. But it also has authority over the natural law because the natural law is included within the supernatural revelation. So what that means is the Pope is able to teach us matters of natural law, of ethics, in his infallible capacity. Um, that it's not that the church is treading on somebody else's territory when it's teaching us about morality. Any other thoughts before we move along? How much of this is already familiar from previous backgrounds? Well, it would vary with all of you, I suppose. Exactly. Let's look at an example on page two, or in fact two examples. So these are two examples of a natural law argument, and one of these is um, a valid argument, one of them is an invalid argument that I'm laying out to indicate how a natural law argument should work. So the first example, example A, is directly from St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's the statement or the claim that religion is natural to man. That being religious isn't an extra thing, it's natural to me. And St. Thomas argues it, uh, as I've quoted there. <coughs> he says, at all times and among all nations, there has always been the offering of sacrifices. Now that which is observed by all, experience, is seemingly natural. Therefore, the offering of sacrifices is of the natural law. Then spells it out further. Natural reason tells a man that he is subject to a higher being. And whatever this superior being may be, it is known to all under the name of God. Now, just as in natural things the lower are naturally subject to the higher so too it is a dictate of natural reason in accordance with man's natural inclination that he should tender submission and honour according to his mode, which is to that which is above man. Now the mode befitting to man is that he should impose, employ sensible signs in order to signify anything, because he derives his knowledge from sensible. Hence it is a dictate of natural reason that man should use certain sensibles by offering them to God in sign of the subjection and honour due to him, like those who make certain offerings to their Lord in recognition of his authority. Now this is what we mean by a sacrifice, and consequently the offering of sacrifice is of the natural law. I've made five points there about how he's arguing that. First, he refers to experience. He says, at all times, looking at all human history. Secondly, he uses reasoning. He looks at that experience and then he reasons about it. So he talks about the existence of a higher being implying something from a lower being. Noted also, we're not going to look at this much today, but he refers to man's natural inclination. Um, but in natural law analyses, we will typically look at what something is inclined to as indicating something about what it is. So a plant is inclined to the sun. Well, that tells us something about what a plant is, um, what its inclination is. 
Similarly within us, there are certain basic inclinations, and when we see those, we learn something about ourselves. Now, obviously, to throw into the mix, we also are in a fallen state, so some of our inclinations aren't good. Um, uh, fourthly, I've noticed he draws on a notion of what is natural to a being such as a human. So a human's nature is that he is a lower being and that he is a sensible being. And he concludes that he should therefore show honour, lower to higher, therefore he should show honour. How should he show honour? He should show honour using sensible stuff, because he's a sensible creature, a creature of the senses. So crop offerings, animal offerings, in all of human history, this is what we find humans doing sacrificing to whatever god they thought there was, that they realized there was something, they did the same format. And that this is of the natural law. Reason is able to know this. And finally, I've noted there, he doesn't refer to Jesus in this analysis. You might think, well, Jesus on the cross, this is the perfect example of showing sacrifice. But no, that would be supernatural as a motive, not natural as a motive. So a natural law argument, this is how it works. Let me read through the comment I've added further. I've noted, the existence of a culture that did not offer worship to its God was probably unknown to St. Thomas. However, St. Thomas was aware that some cultures can be so corrupted that they can fail to see what is natural. For example, he refers to theft as being something that the ancient Germanic tribes didn't realize was wrong. So he says, in some, the reason is perverted by passion or by evil habit or by an evil disposition of nature. And he would then view such a culture as perverse. So just because the natural law can be known doesn't mean it is known. So when the church says reason can deduce, it's not saying therefore everybody, every reasonable man knows what reason is able to deduce. Well, that, that really um, that helps me with, with the question really that I had earlier on. Um, I guess that the experience of the 20th century probably comes under this um, reason is perverted by passion or by evil habit or by evil disposition of nature. Um, is it not is it not the case that, that the experience of, uh, of the 20th century often led people to become uh, quite pessimistic about human nature? Mm. Whereas much of this, I mean, it, it warms my heart because it is in many ways optimistic is, yes, about yes, human nature. Yes. And, and that's what I've actually been quite surprised about in, in reading, in, in moral theology reading, is, mm. is its optimism. Mm -hmm. And yet I guess that I mean, what little I know about people like sort of Karl Barth rejecting the notion of um, natural theology in mm. favour of God's revelation probably came about because, perhaps because of the experience that, you know, often human nature would seem to be so corrupted that it, it, it just, the notion that, that we can know by nature. And, and, but last of all, you emphasised, didn't you, that it is not just nature, it's, it's nature and reason. Mm -hmm. 
and that, that reason must inform nature. It's not just enough to say, well, well I, you know, I just know this is right, I know this is wrong. Um, uh, do, do, you understand, do you understand what I mean, or is it just me being pessimistic? And, uh, uh, well, well, you said a, a few different things yeah, that were sure. right, but um, I think with Karl Barth, coming out of the Protestant tradition, yes. there is a view of human nature that is corrupted, not just deprived, depraved, not just deprived, mm -hmm. and therefore reason not being capable of doing what Catholic thought says it is capable of doing. But there is also the 20th century experience of just the presumed impotence of reason to deal with these matters. Um, so we're not really going to look at a chap called Alistair McIntyre, but this is one of his analyses, is what he calls the failure of the Enlightenment project, that in the late 20th century, it was apparent that all that the Enlightenment, the, the golden age of reason was going to unfold, actually it didn't answer its own questions. And didn't uh, Bart also, was there a certain tacit, uh, well, he wanted to re recover Christianity after, Bar I'm sorry, after Kant. And so, right. didn't he sort of presume a certain degree of that Kantian methodology was I, I don't know enough about Barth, to be honest. Much of, um, much of um, German Protestant ethical thought, moral thought, is Kantian. Yeah, sure. I remember the whole, the whole um, uh, what, what happens is that, that that becomes the mode by which um, um, Protestantism and, and Protestant thought uh, does moral theology. But it's and a tacit, it's a tacit, some of them are quite open about it. They, they, they accept that that is the Kantian analysis of, 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 of this is is what what morality is uh, about, and uh, and they will use it. But it, it's one of the reasons why that makes it so difficult to compare moral thought specifically and to bring into dialogue moral thought, Protestant mm -hmm. and Catholic, yeah. in in that. Certainly, if it's dominated by Kant, but it's quite openly Kantian. Can I? Yeah. Question. Would uh, uh, the example of the sorry man stealing bread be an example of reason being perverted by passion? What, sorry? A hungry man stealing bread, would that be an example of reason being perverted by passion? Well, actually, depending on the context, Catholic analysis would say the hungry man has a right to take the bread. He's not stealing it. Um, that ownership is not absolute, it's relative. That the giving of the good things of creation is primordial at a primordial level to all of humanity. That's mediated through private ownership. But if I, holding on to my vast wealth and my food, don't feed the hungry man at my door, actually I'm not giving him what is his. It's not that I'm failing to be generous. Actually he has a claim to what I have. Um, because private ownership is a relative thing. Um, so it's not, it's not that the passions have perverted the reasoning, actually the reasoning would say, no, the hungry man does have a right to it. Okay. But to think of that, that distinction, though, because it is... So St. Thomas says um, three different ways that your um, person who's not thinking properly doesn't think properly. Vicious customs, corrupt habits, or evil persuasions. So evil persuasions. 
So I, as a young teenager today, I grow up listening to the BBC and to Channel 4, and I just naturally think that all kinds of things are what decent normal people do. The evil persuasions have corrupted my thinking. So even though my reason is able to grasp the truth, and even able in the midst of the BBC, but it's much more difficult. So that's one of the ways reason will fail to achieve what reason's able to do. The other is um, <coughs> uh, vicious customs. So I grow up in a society where in that society, regardless of what they say they're doing as evil persuasions, their behaviour, the customs in that society, corrupts my ability to think properly. So I grow up um, and... I grow up in a world where fatherhood is very rare, that marital fidelity is very rare, that marriage is actually barely thought of as a real thing at all. So those vicious customs around me corrupt the ability of my reason to think properly. This is why Aquinas would say Cinderace's in, in conscience has to be informed by a good conscience for it to be valid and to be acted upon morally. So it needs to be informed by tradition and scripture. Yes, the conscience needs to be formed. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, Whereas a bad conscience is informed badly and therefore the person can't act morally. Um, I'm slightly hesitant because the word conscience gets used lots of different ways. Um, Consentia, that, that part which yes. needs to be trained. Yes, um, and it does need to be trained mm. um, and formed. But it needs to be followed even when it's wrong, because mm. I don't have anything else to follow. Yeah. Um, the last thing St. Thomas says can corrupt your reasoning is an evil habit. So not evil reasoning from other people, not evil customs in other people, but my own habits. So I am gluttonous. I always have ten donuts for breakfast. And by always having ten donuts for breakfast, in my evil habits, I have lost the ability to think clearly about what's a moderate-sized breakfast. So that's another way in which my reasoning can fail to function, by my own habits, not the habits of those around me. So hopefully that's clarifying a little bit what we mean by reason. So reason's able to do all this, but that doesn't mean it does it automatically. So that means we need to be thinking carefully about the habits we see in ourselves, in the society around us, and the evil persuasions in those around us. And those particular with the, the, temper, the things that pertain within, with the, temp, the virtue of temperance, because uh, sexual sins are slightly more serious. And that's why uh, in a situation like this, you'd say it's immoderate. You can't conceive the moderate, the moderation level because of bad habit. So your, so your ability to be temperate is distorted. Yes, I'm just a little wary of the thought that sexual sins are necessarily well, more serious. They're objectively greatly moral. But justice, um, as one of the other four cardinal virtues, can be a matter of mortal sin if I'm failing to give to somebody in dire need. But not automatically so, like sexual sins. The, the difference being, as we said last time, that 
you can't have a little bit of adultery, but you can have a little bit of injustice. Um, there's not a temperance issue in sexuality. It's a chastity is pretty binary. You have to put it that way. Okay. So what I spelt out there was one good example from St. Thomas of how a natural law argument works. Now, by contrast, the bottom half of page two there, I've given what I've called a false argument. Um, the argument, and you will hear this um, from certain Christians, the argument, as I put there, that homosexual intercourse is natural. It's just a natural thing to do. And the argument is often spelt out like this. Some animals can be observed to engage in anal sex. Some animals can seem, be seen to occasionally have homosexual couples. And I've quoted three different uh, newspaper articles. Um, gay penguins steal eggs from straight couples. <laughs> the love that daren't squawk its name. Um, born again flamingos, two loving daddies. You know, what could be more gay than two pink flamingos? Mm. So, so that these newspaper articles, even though they're not ethical and nuanced, they are saying all this in the background, that this is the way animals behave, and therefore, as I put the, the supposed conclusion, homosexual anal intercourse is deemed natural in accord, and in accord with the natural law. Now, as I've said there, though, the problem with that whole analysis is that natural law does not mean imitating the animals. It means what's in accord with our nature. And our nature isn't animal. It's bodily, but it's also spiritual. And sex for us has a whole level of meaning beyond the level of meaning it has for animals. So to do what is natural isn't the same thing as to do what is animal. But that does presume that the soul, the anima, the soul of the animal, sorry, what, the soul, uh, you have to, the pre, the, 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 the subordinate uh, case is you must prove that we are m not more than mammals. Therefore, you have to show that we have a soul yes. which yes. has those facts. Otherwise, if you are able to show sexual, homosexual behavior in humans, right. then you get the same case. Right, indeed, indeed. Uh, and so when we say reason is able to deduce, actually there's frequently many different levels of things we have to prove with reason before a remote yeah, conclusion. You have to prove that we're immaterial. Or we're, we're yes, yes, indeed. Mm. Which is where you can't, uh, why natural law fails in current dialogue, because no one will, will take as a, as a presumption that we have a supernatural aspect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the animals do it, so should we. But do those two examples clarify what we're talking about here? There's also a kind of question behind the second example yes. in terms of the, the all affecting not just humanity, but also our creation, the cosmic. Yes. Whether the animals would have behaved that way in the Garden of Eden... I'm not sure I'm particularly committed to an opinion one way or the other. Exactly what I think that my fundamental conviction would be that maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't, I wouldn't be particularly... But because for them and how they function, it's not that significant in the way it is for us. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you can't, the kind of, isn't a straight read across from whatever it is in nature to yes. the natural law, because yes. the law of nature is not taking the natural law. Right. Back to your point, though, about that we exist in a fallen state. Um, so we also can't look at a man today and say, well, he has an inclination to homosexual behaviour. If he's inclined to it, it's in his nature. Well, no, the nature we're talking about is, you could say, more technical or more fundamental. It's not just any inclination in us that is normative. We are needing to look at human nature and see how it is made, designed, finds real fulfillment. And not everything I feel an impulse to, an inclination to, leads to my fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And there are, I have no doubt, uh, a good many uh, men of a homosexual inclination who have no inclination to the behavior that would fulfill them. But that doesn't mean they're going to be fulfilled in pursuing what their passions are drawn to. Because an inclination itself, alone, that, that's, that's just what Nietzsche and, uh, and this idea of the will, the, the, uh, do what you want, is purely yes. operating out of what it is that we desire is a good, and a will, desire being will as well, uh, as an in, in, inclination. And that would be a very modern way of looking at it, yeah. Um, so the word inclination has a technical, Thomistic, and Aristotelian context that's quite different to how it gets used today. Um, so two examples there to help give a bit more in, in, indication what's meant by natural. Um, skimming down page three, um, just to... What I've said on page three hopefully is now summarising a bit of what I've already said. So... I've given basically three different reasons why we call natural law natural. What's meant by calling it natural? So the first, natural law is natural because all people are naturally capable of knowing it. So I've said that birds are naturally able to fly, fish are naturally able to swim, humans are naturally able to know the moral law, i.e. to know right from wrong. I've said, note, not all people achieve what they are capable of. Just as a, well, actually, a better example, a mutant bird might not be able to fly, but it's in the nature of a bird to be able to fly. Um, other line I've put there, um, a conclusion of this, or an implication, that all the ethical laws of Christianity are capable of being known by non-Christians. So it's not just some of our moral law, but all of it is able to be known by non-Christians. Second meaning of natural. Uh, the natural law is natural because it accords with our nature. So I've said it's not an external imposition, but accords with our nature and fulfills us. So the natural law says that a man and woman should only have intercourse when they are committed to each other in marriage. Now, that isn't some random command from God. No, that actually accords with what they are, that they are made in their very nature, from their very beginning, to be the kind of beings that, only, that sexual intercourse only finds its purpose and meaning in that context. So it's not a random external law, but a law that's within their very nature. 
So the law accords with what your nature is. Spelled out a consequence there. Um, all humans are therefore called to follow the same moral law because they all possess the same human nature. So theft, murder, abortion, for example, are all immoral, not just immoral in one country in time, but for all humans in every country, in every culture, for all humans in every era of history. And obviously that's very much a disputed point in a relativistic age, but what Catholics are saying is that there is something in human nature that transcends every particularity of a particular culture and moment in time that will not vary. That marriage doesn't cease to exist in one culture. It might not be recognised, but it's still what a human is. And, and so far, you're saying that I think that there couldn't be uh, <laughs> it were, uh, an irrational revealed moral law that Definitely. God couldn't just suddenly I don't know couldn't but, but God doesn't suddenly reveal because that would make God irrational exactly and, and our reason rightly our right reason will always reflect the very wisdom capital W at the heart of God yes oh okay fine yeah. and I would be quite happy to say God cannot in, in the same sense, he cannot do something that is self-contradictory. Okay, fine. So, yeah. God, who is love, cannot act in a hateful way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm not limiting him yes. by saying that. I'm just saying what he is. Um, that he and otherwise, you have a purely voluntaristic... And, and that, in, that, in a sense, would be the answer to, to the extreme Calvinist view, mm. where human reason is totally at variance with the... With, with the nature of God because if all is revealed then all you can do is say well I, I must do what God commands but it has nothing it has no interface it has no relation to to my reason is, mm -hmm. would that be fair? yes okay yes. Fine. fine so my reason is able to discover all these things because reason is the same thing in me and in God fine yeah. now yeah. I only have a limited participation yeah. in his reasoning but it's not a different reason, okay. it's not a different law so what we call the natural law is our participation okay. in what's called the eternal law yeah. in the mind of God thank, thank you, that's, that's, that's very helpful and ultimately Protestantism seems as oversimplification but to say it, is, it does have a voluntaristic mm -hmm. conception of mm -hmm. deity and in that sense it is very God is pure will. Right. Will, 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 wills whatever. Because even Luther, you know, reason the whole reason. I mean, mm. He wasn't happy about reason either. The third way of what we mean by the word natural, um, and this is a kind of a different sense again. The natural law is natural because we can use a posteriori reasoning from facts of nature to moral laws. Um, Said there, but note such reasoning can be erroneous. I've given some examples here. So this is the old conundrum David Hume phrase in terms of is ought. Um, but 
most Catholic theologians actually be quite happy with an is-ought structure. That that's what natural law is doing. It's going from what is the case in nature to figuring out what uh, ought to be done in law, and reason moves you from one step to the other. So the examples I've put there, some two valid is-ought arguments. First, man is naturally inferior to God, therefore he is morally obliged to worship God. The natural nature shows you what is natural. Secondly, man is naturally social, thus he is morally obliged to love. That's a very brief argument, but I don't think it's too difficult to see how you could spell that out. You look at nature and deduce what is natural, the natural law. But then I've given two invalid arguments, just to show that this can be done badly. <laughs> the uh, old one that if man was meant to fly, he'd been born with wings. Well, you know, just because what is the case doesn't mean it ought to be, in morally speaking. And secondly, the natural tendency of stupid people to harm themselves implies they should all be put out of their misery. So, um, so when we're talking about analysing nature to deduce the natural law, that is the way the structure of the argument works, but that has to be done carefully. Do we want to take a five-minute breather there?